Welcome to episode 58, Spiritual Awakening in Recovery, Creating Sustained Change, featuring Dr. Michael McGee, triple board certified psychiatrist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael McGee, and I'm talking today with you about the process of spiritual awakening and recovery. You can find out more information about me at drmichaelmcgee.com. That's drmichaelmcgee.com. If you have any questions about this presentation, you can reach me at mdm at wellmind.com. That's wellmind.com. And um, I'd be happy to hear from you. Um, let me start by saying that in terms of conflicts of interest, I have none to disclose. Uh, the talk today uh, will cover three broad topics. The first is, what is spirituality and what is spiritual awakening? Uh, the second topic we'll cover is spirit, the nature of spirituality and awakening and their impact on recovery from addiction. And then we'll talk about clinically responsible and effective ways of fostering <clears throat> both spiritual health and awakening in our patients. So let's start with what is spirituality and, and what is spiritual awakening. Uh, the literature is all over the place in terms of different components of, of what is spirituality uh, with many different constructs, um, uh, as many as 70 different uh, constructs in one review. Um, I like a study by McClintock, uh, which was an online uh, study of about 80,000 respondents from all around the world. A and an analysis of the responses came up with five universal dimensions for spirituality. The first and most important dimension, the foundational um, aspect of spirituality, is an experience of unity or oneness. And out of that experience of oneness, there comes arises a natural feeling of reverence or love. And out of that feeling of reverence or love comes a, a an altruistic impulse to uh, live our lives for the one life which we are a part of and to serve others and to enhance life. Uh, the other two components of spirituality are spiritual practices and reflection and a commitment to a life well examined. Uh, these uh, different spiritual practices, which in general involve prayer, meditation, some sort of practice of, of contemplation, silence, solitude, and stillness, uh, combined with reflection uh, and commitment to um, uh, a well-lived life. Um, the, these practices and, and contemplation uh, uh, activities uh, fuel uh, the development of the experience of unity and oneness. Uh, which then fuels the experience of reverence for life uh, uh, or love and altruistic behavior. If you look at clinical dimension definitions of spirituality, common things that um, arise uh, are um, basically seeing spirituality as our relationship with reality and that this relationship is, co is characterized by coherence or harmony love and connectedness or unity. There are three dimensions to spirituality, which roughly correspond to the three um, uh, components of the cerebral cortex. 
Uh, the first is the dimension of experience. And the primary experience of spirituality is one of transcendence or connectedness or oneness uh, with all that is. Um, the second dimension is that of understanding. And spiritual understandings have to do with a deeper sense of meaning of life uh, and, and also the development of wisdom. And the third dimension of spirituality uh, is the dimension of action or behavior. And, and spiritually, this refers to love-based actions, uh, altruistic behavior. When we look at spiritual health, we can think about the concept of coherence. And the idea is that there is a coherence between our experience, our understanding, and our behavior. And when we have that kind of coherent harmony between experience, understanding, and behavior, this leads to well-being, uh, to feeling good, and also to a goodness or characterological transformation, uh, which are the two uh, main um, consequences or manifestations of a healthy spirituality, uh, feeling good and goodness. Um, now, spirituality is seen uh, by some writers as an antidote to what we might call uh, ego consciousness. Uh, the ego is, is a wonderful invention of nature, um, it probably, uh, really evolved over the past 200 to 100,000 years, uh, and, and really became prominent as a neuropsychological phenomenon and function with the advent of civilization. The ego has tremendous benefits. Uh, our, our ego, uh, is efficient. It, it is good at, at creating abstract representations of reality, visualizing the future. Uh, learning from the past. It's very good at reasoning, uh, abstract reasoning and, and conceptual reasoning. It's because of our ego that we are able to develop civilization and, and, and is really, uh, the, um, the main driver behind our capacity to be so adaptive and, 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 uh, masterful of our environment. But the ego comes at a cost and the cost is a sense of separation a separate sense of myself being disconnected and separate from other people. And with that, there's also a sense of discontent and isolation. Uh, and when it, because of ego consciousness and, and the, the, the constant thought chatter and, and, uh, abstraction world of abstractions that we live in and, and reflections on the past memories of the past and, and, um, uh, uh, re visualizations of the future, we live our minds, we live more in our minds than we do in the world. Uh, there's one writer, Dr. Taylor, who has studied uh, the phenomenon of awakening, who says that in a sense, with the advent of civilization and, and the real uh, emergence of the ego, that in a way we sort of fell asleep. And spirituality is about a process of waking up from the sleep of ego. So we know that uh, people talk about having a spiritual awakening experiences, and there's more and more research and documentation of these experiences. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the nature of awakened or transcendent consciousness versus ego consciousness. There are four dimensions uh, to uh, awake, awaken versus ego consciousness. Uh, those dimensions are the perceptual dimension, the affective dimension, the cognitive dimension, and the behavioral dimension. 
So let's start first with the perceptual dimension. In ego consciousness, which is very efficient, um, there is a de-intensification of perception and an automization of perception. The ego is very good at sort of filtering the flood of information coming in and deciding automatically for us what it is that we need to focus on that's most relevant to our survival. Uh, also, also uh, our perceptions are, are more abstract in nature, and there's the perceptual experience of separateness, uh, of, of us being separate people uh, apart from other people, from others. Uh, the perceptual characteristics of somebody who's experiencing had an awakening experience is one of perception being more intensified, uh, more open, more fresh, more of a sense of presentness or timelessness. Uh, some people experience the sense of this pervasive spiritual energy of some sort that seems to effuse everything. And a greater experience of, of freshness, aliveness, uh, harmony, and connectedness of everything. More of, of the experience that we talked about before, uh, uh, that I spoke about before, of unity. In terms of the affective characteristics of ego versus awakened consciousness, in ego consciousness, again, there's that sense of separation and disconnection, a feeling of insecurity, a feeling that this this moment is never enough. There's incessant uh, thought chatter. Uh, there's reflections on the past with regret and worries about the future. Uh, basically, uh, the ego consciousness is a state of, of oftentimes ang anxiety and discontent, a sense of lack. Um, there's also a fear of death, and, and oftentimes uh, there's the experience of boredom. On the other hand, in awakened consciousness, there's a, rather than having a compulsive thought chatter, uh, there's uh, a sense of inner quietness and stillness. Uh, there's a retrieval of awareness from its immersion in thought. There's a sense that there, we are our awareness, uh, which is separate from the thoughts and feelings and uh, other sensations that are arising in, in the field of awareness. There's a feeling of oneness, uh, a sense of transformation of identity, that our identity expands out to include all of the world, including other people. There's a greater sense of empathy and compassion uh, for others and for ourselves. Uh, there's a greater sense of well-being, a feeling that all is well. Um, some people talk about this as, as a peace that passeth all understanding. Um, there's also uh, an absence or a decre decreased fear of death, a death uh, being affectively experienced as something that is sacred and, and part of the, the, the sacred whole of things. Uh, many people report feeling increased energy and a greater feeling of security and equanimity. In terms of conceptual characteristics, uh, ego consciousness is very much because of separateness uh, associated with a sense of group identity, me versus you, us versus them. Also, um, conceptually, there's, there's what we know as egocentricity, which is a preoccupation of thought around our own personal concerns, our own safety, our own comfort, our own status and belonging. Uh, really, ego focusing on our, our survival and the provocation of our DNA, um, and, which are all good things. And um, but but really, the ego is is conceptually concerned with with those those survival, safety, and comfort uh, issues. Conceptually, when somebody's awakened. 
there's a loss of the sense of group identity. There's more of a universal outlook and concern. There's a heightened sense of, of, of a more universal morality. There's a deeper sense of appreciation for the experience of awareness. There's greater sense of curiosity and inquisitiveness. And there's also an elevation of thought um, to high, higher levels of, uh, of thinking. In terms of behavioral, uh, the ego uh, consciousness is really about gratification, uh, distraction and diversion, uh, accumulation of, of, of material, materials and wealth. It's about attachment to having things and people and places and things be a certain way in order to secure our safety and survival. Uh, there's behaviorally oftentimes experiences, as I mentioned before, of, of boredom uh, because of uh, a focus on uh, needing to manipulate the world to get our needs met. There can be inauthenticity. There can be judgment, uh, more of, of a, a quickness to engage in conflict and manipulation with others and also the development of addiction uh, as a way of trying to uh, feel good and not feel bad. Now, as opposed to ego, con ego consciousness behaviors, awakened consciousness behaviors are more um, a sense of altruism and engagement with the world, uh, less of a, of a compulsive self-preoccupation. There's more of a capacity to just be, um, with this moment, there, and, and, a, and, a, and a decreased amount of, of compulsive striving. There's more of a sense of a lack of boredom, that this moment is not only enough, this moment is a feast, just as it is. There's a sense of non-materialism and non-attachment. There's a shift from consuming uh, to contributing. Uh, there's um, more of a sense of authenticity, uh, uh, more of an interdirected sense of uh, of motivation for our behavior. And in general, people who've awakened have uh, enhanced and more authentic relationships with others. So if you look at uh, the meta characteristics of wakefulness or awakening, you see uh, two uh, uh, general characteristics from all the, the all these other uh, characteristics uh, flow from. And those two characteristics are openness or connectedness and inner stillness. So uh, in terms of openness and connectedness, there's greater empathy and compassion, a sense of uh, inner security, a loss of a fear of death, loss of need for a group, identity, more of a universal outlook, uh, altruism and non-accumulation, non which stem from this. And for inner stillness, there's more of a increased sense of perceptual acuity, more of a sense of presentness, and more of a, of a sense of a capacity to just be. Um, both uh, openness and stillness are linked to each other and reinforce, and reinforce each other. And together, these qualities of openness and stillness uh, lead to well-being, altruism, uh, de-automatized perception, and ultimately the realization of a life of love. Now, if we look uh, at tra traditional religious um, traditions, um, common themes emerge among all the major religions in terms of uh, the experience over, over the ages of spiritual awakening. Um, and it's interesting to see that there are such commonalities between different religions. And those commonalities include, again, the sense of union or unity or connection to something greater than ourselves, 
a sense of inner stillness or emptiness, a sense of uh, being both autonomous and interdependent, um, being uh, independent agents, but also being inextricably interconnected to a web of life uh, that is much greater than we are. Uh, a compassion and altruism. Uh, there's a relinquishing of personal agency that's often noted. There's a sense that people who are awakened have a sense that they are now channels uh, for a higher force of love that, that works through them uh, in the world. And, and and then there's also this heightened awareness, and which in different traditions can be described as increased clarity. Uh, in Buddhist traditions, there's the, there's the experience of non-duality, a lack of a sense of separate self apart from others. And then finally, uh, all the religious traditions note well-being, bliss, joy, peace, uh, equanimity as resulting from uh, the awakening experience. Now, many people have a mystical experience uh, that um, that triggers a spiritual awakening. And uh, William James uh, and, and others have, have studied and characterized the nature of the mystical experience. And, and again, there's this experience of unity or inter interconnectedness. Uh, people who've had a mystical experience have the report sort of a noetic quality, uh, a sort of a profound sense of, of, of that this is the truth, this is the ultimate truth of things, a truth that can't really be put into words. There's a feeling that uh, of sacredness. Uh, generally, there's a positive mood. There's people report experiences of a transcendence of time and space. Uh, this experience is hard to put into words. It's, it's often called ineffable, meaning it can't be put into words. Uh, it often leads to a spiritual awakening. Uh, people also report a sense of disintegration of the ego, the, the set sense of a separate self uh, or a separate uh, identity apart from all of, all of creation. Uh, there's a sense of unrestrained uh, or unconstrained cognition. Uh, these experiences are generally transient, uh, lasting a few hours to a few days at most. And there's a sense of passivity that these experiences happen to us. Uh, one cannot ego their way into a mystical experience or, or into a, a spiritual awakening. There's something that people experience is happening to them. Uh, neurobiologically, uh, we're beginning to look at uh, uh, possible uh, neurobiological correlates of the awakening experience. Uh, one study showed an inverse correlation with 5-HT1A forebrain receptors in the experience of, of transcendence. There may be a possible correlation with 5-HT2A activity in the cortex. Uh, one thing that is, is, is fairly well established is that there's a reduction in activity in a part of the brain called the default mode network, which is where sort of the ego self uh, is generated, the experience of the ego self is generated. Um, what types of awakenings are there and what triggers them? There's basically three types of, of spiritual awakenings. There's more of a natural awakening. Uh, I should say that we're all awakened to some degree. It's not an all or none phenomenon. And, and all of us have had to some degree some of these experiences of, of awakening. And some people seem to be just more naturally awakened than others. It, there may be a genetic uh, component to this. Uh, the other kind of awakening is a sudden awakening, which many people report. And then there's the gradual awakening that generally uh, uh, occurs as a result of uh, prolonged spiritual practice. 
The triggers of awakening uh, include, as I mentioned, spiritual practice, uh, the experience of beauty or awe that can be caused by nature, music, or the arts. Uh, another big trigger of awakening is, is intense psychological turmoil. Sometimes people reach a breaking point in their lives. Maybe there's been a profound loss or prolonged distress, and there's a feeling of just no way out that can trigger an awakening. Sometimes an awakening can be triggered by a sense of a profound, deep discrepancy, that, that lack of coherence that we talked about between experience, understanding, and action. Uh, that can trigger awakening. And finally, awakening experiences have been reported through the use of psychedelics or entheogens. Um, we we see from the mystical type experience, uh, studies of this experience with that are induced by psilocybin, uh, that psilocybin does reduce a default mode network activity and, unco- and uncouples the anterior and posterior singlet uh, uh, nodes of the default mode network and uncouples activity between the two of them. Um, in studies of um, the mystical experience um, uh, with, with psychedelics, um, there is a correlation between uh, a reduction in, in d- default mode network activity and a subjective experience of dissolution of the ego. Again, uh, pointing to the idea that the default mode network is probably involved um, in generating the sense of a separate self uh, and, and the sense of, of, a, of an identity uh, of ourselves. Um, it's also, uh, there are also studies uh, that have shown that um, meditation actually reduces default mode network activity as well. So the default mode network uh, and reduction activity in that network uh, seems to be uh, involved in, in, in the experience of, of awakening. Um, in terms of the psychology of awakening, uh, what's universal uh, in terms of the mystical experiences is, is uh, with the profound experience of, of unity is also an experience of awe and reverence, which leads to a profound reordering of, of one's life agenda or values to an agenda of love. Uh, uh, an agenda of love for self, for others, and for life itself. And then there's a sense of transcendence of ego drives. Uh, although uh, the ego is still very important, and and our needs for safety, comfort, and belonging uh, are 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 still critical to our survival. Uh, there's a sense that um, a, a subjective sense of being able to engage the ego and and engage in in survival. Um, behaviors, uh, but not a sense of being a slave to the ego. There's a sense of using the ego rather than the ego using us. And and with that, there's a reorganization of the self-structure from ego consciousness to more uh, of the transcendent consciousness that we've talked about. Um, an interesting study, uh, studies are being done now on spiritual awakening uh, um, and, and cultivating spiritual awakening. Uh, there is one study that was done by Griffiths, uh, published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology in 2018, that showed uh, the use of psilocybin uh, in the context of psilocybin-enhanced um, psychotherapy, combined with and without spiritual practices for six months, um, showed um, significant positive changes in interpersonal closeness, gratitude, uh, life meaning and purpose, uh, forgiveness, a transcendence of a fear of death, uh, 
uh, a, a greater experiences of unity and transcendence on a daily basis, uh, increased interest in religious faith and coping. Uh, these these were corroborated uh, corroborated by community observers, uh, and uh, who also noted in, in the high spiritual practice cohort increased openness. Um, that 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 character trait of openness uh, was modified through the combination of uh, the use of psilocybin with intensive spiritual practice. Uh, what's interesting is that the intensity of the mystical experience accounted for much of the positive changes in this study, but spiritual practices, particularly meditation, further enhanced uh, the, these outcomes, the, these um, uh, markers uh, of, an, of an awakening process. So uh, that, that sort of summarizes um, the nature of spiritual awakening and a little bit about the neurobiology and psychology of it. Let's talk a little bit about the science of spirituality and recovery. What's interesting is that uh, the, the Alcoholics Anonymous movement, which was founded by uh, Bill Wilson and, and Dr. Dr. Bob, um, was started and inspired by Bill Wilson's own spiritual awakening experience, which he called a white light experience when he was detoxing in a New York hospital. And what was interesting is that he was actually given uh, a, a drug called belladonna, which seemed to trigger uh, his awakening experience. So even AA uh, and, and, and the 12-step the approach towards recovery uh, was, was triggered uh, and initiated by a drug-induced spiritual awakening experience in Bill Wilson. Um, what we know from the research on spirituality is that spiritual issues are a near universal human concern and that patients wish for us to address them in their treatment. And we also know that spirituality, including spiritual practices, uh, promote wellness and reduce illness burden. Um, we can think about addiction as in part being um, a spiritual quest. Uh, in spirituality, there's this need for uh, a, a, a higher sense of purpose and meaning. You might call that a primary organizing principle for our lives, which uh, people experience as either the principle of love or, or, or maybe a, a transcendent being like God. There's this desire uh, for something more, the human desire for something more that comes from ego consciousness, a sense of something missing or lack. There's a sense of a desire for passion or ecstasy or a union or connection, a sense of well-being. Uh, and spirituality, we know, is a mediator of, of the pains of life. They help people to cope with um, life's difficulties. And spirituality provides sort of a, a purpose and method for living. Now, what's very interesting, if we think about addiction as a spiritual quest, is that the object of addiction supplants the primary organizing principle of love or God, and the addiction becomes the primary organizing principle. And the desire for something more uh, gets met, uh, not through a, a sense of unity with all that is, but through the effects of the drug or behavior. Uh, and so that rather than... Um, a sense of eudaimonia or, or well-being, it's replaced with an addictive uh, 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 stimulating of euphoria or relaxation or maybe intensity. Um, so what we're doing is, is enhancing uh, pleasure chemically, enhancing pleasure or, or, or numbing pain 
uh, as a um, way of getting the something more that, that the human ego consciousness is yearning for. Uh, also, addiction is used as a mediator of pain, uh, just as in spirituality. And addiction becomes a method for living, uh, just as in spirituality. Uh, so we, we see a lot of similarities uh, in terms of addiction sort of invading and and um, being a, a sort of um, corrupt uh, spiritual crust, if we think about it in these ways. If we look at addiction as a disease spirituality, we see that, that what triggers addiction generally is pain. And it could be uh, spiritual pain. It could be the pain of trauma or psychiatric illness. It could even be physical pain. Uh, but in, another pain that can trigger addiction, uh, some people think, is the pain of modern society. Uh, in our society, as, as com- compared to antiquity, there's a fragmentation of purpose and meaning. Uh, there's a fragmentation of, of a given method for living. Uh, we live in sort of an, uh, of a, a pluralistic, anything-goes kind of society uh, where uh, there isn't a clear sense of purpose, meaning, and method. Also, uh, there's more boredom. We have more leisure time now, uh, which, uh, again, creates uh, a sense of lack for people. Uh, and also, there's more loneliness now uh, than there was uh, 2,000 years ago. There's, there's been much more of a breakdown of community, especially in, in first world countries. Uh, back in antiquity, uh, the people that you, you lived with and, and uh, ate with and uh, were also the people that you worked with. And there was a deep sense of interconnectedness and belonging to community. And that lack of a sense of belonging, uh, it, it can be a pain uh, that, um, that can trigger addiction. So uh, if we think about addiction as, as in some ways formulated as, as the disease of our spirituality, we see that in a way addiction involves idolatry, a false god where the substance or, or behavior becomes uh, the higher power uh, that we live our lives uh, for. Uh, and, and this idea of sin, um, a controversial idea, but if we think about sin as it's formulated in terms of uh, of not living in accordance with the higher purpose uh, and calling uh, of our lives, um, uh, then, um, then then addiction can be thought of as a form of sin. Um, uh, also, uh, addiction can be thought of as a form of, of, of worship of, 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 of a false prophet, the, po- the false prophet being the, the substance or behavior uh, that we uh, devote our lives to rather than uh, devoting our lives to a higher purpose or something greater than ourselves. Uh, another way of thinking about addiction that I think is relevant to the idea of spiritual awakening is to think about addiction uh, as a disease of habit. Um, addiction is somewhere intermediate between choice and, and other uh, diseases. Um, it really is um, a disease uh, of, of, our, of our ability to... Um, to modulate or, or change our habits. As you, as you know, habits are semi-autonomous. Uh, they're effortless. They are, they develop in our brains as a way of achieving relevant ends, um, or, or goods or, or to satisfy certain values. Um, they're developed through learning and repetition. And, and usually habits uh, are modifiable through significant effort. But in the disease of addiction, there's a disease of habit in the sense that the habit of addiction 
is not easily modifiable through effort. People have a sense of compulsion and loss of control. And that's sort of the neurobiological disease component in terms of, um, of changing habits. Now, what's interesting spiritually is the issue of the habits, the values that are driving a habit and, and the ends, the relevant ends or motivating factors for the addiction. And for the addiction, uh, the, the relevant values are to feel good and not feel bad. And, and also maybe to, to create a sense of purpose, meaning and method, uh, and, and a structure to somebody's life. Um, what happens with the spiritual awakening is a radical transformation of values. And, uh, when people awaken, there's a replacement of values such as, um, gratification, uh, or materialism or, or status or, um, uh, uh, these kinds of ego, ego values, uh, there's, there's a replacement of that with the value of love. And love becomes the primary ordering principle in, in people who've had an awakening experience. And in the context of love, of loving oneself and loving others, the habit of addiction becomes suddenly completely irrelevant. It doesn't achieve the ends of love. And that's why many people say that recovery begins and ends with love, with the experience of a reverence for oneself and others. And out of reverence for ourselves and others, we, we certainly wouldn't do anything to harm ourselves or others. And, and, and when we see the harm uh, that addiction is causing, the habit becomes irrelevant. And, and this is borne out by research in terms of uh, the radical transformation of, of values that occurs with the experience of awe and wonder and unity that people experience, they'll come out of these experiences and say uh, things like, smoking is stupid, why would I want to do that? Um, and suddenly, um, there's, there's this, through the transformation of values, uh, there's a transformation uh, of, of motives, uh, and uh, many people find it much easier when they've awakened to then uh, walk away uh, from uh, the habit of addiction. Uh, if we look at spirituality versus addiction, we see some polarities in terms of if we think of addiction as, as a quest, as a corrupted quest for spirituality, we see that uh, rather than achieving connection or unity, uh, addiction uh, results in isolation. Rather than achieving fulfillment, addiction results at best with temporary gratification or relief. Rather than achieving peace, addiction uh, uh, accomplishes uh, 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 at, at the best, numbness. Rather than experience of humility, uh, addiction is more involved with a sense of arrogance. Rather than interdependence, uh, people with addictions develop pseudo-autonomy. Rather than achieving intimacy, uh, there's a replacement uh, uh, of an intimacy with intensity. Uh, there's a replacement of love with the object of the addiction. There's a replacement of joy with pain. There's a replacement of freedom with enslavement. There's a replacement of integrity with corruption. There's a, a shift from contribution to consumption. And rather than having an other-oriented stance in the world, uh, people with uh, suffering from addiction become extraordinarily self-centered. So um, what we know from the literature on the, on the studies of spirituality and recovery is that spiritual health does promote recovery, that spiritual awakening correlates with recovery. The people who've had an awakening experience have as, as much as a 400% higher rate of recovery as people who have not had a spiritual awakening experience. 
We also know that spiritual practices appear to promote recovery and that the effects of spirituality uh, appear to be both direct and indirect, meaning that spiritual practices and the experience of spiritual health uh, uh, promote recovery in, in the ways that I've talked about, not only directly, but also indirectly through promoting uh, positive psychosocial uh, qualities such as positive coping, uh, improved relationships, enhanced self-efficacy, uh, other uh, positive uh, uh, psychological and, and behavioral um, consequences of a healthy spirituality also promote recovery. Regarding 12 steps in recovery, with 12 steps being the, the one of the most dominant spiritually based uh, ways that people successfully recover. First of all, we know that this, the 12 step program works if you work the program. If you go to meetings, work the steps and work with the sponsor, the research is quite clear that the 12 step program is effective. Uh, both attendance and participation promote recovery. Uh, people who engage in spiritual practices and have spiritual experiences uh, 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 have increased 12-step participation, and 12-step participation enhances spiritual practices and spiritual experiences. And, and both spiritual practice experiences and participation enhance recovery outcomes. Um, there are other 12-step uh, mediators of recovery other than enhancing spiritual health, uh, such as increased self-efficacy, positive coping with stress, motivation for abstinence increased, facilitating changes in positive changes in social networks, reducing depression, and engagement in altruistic behavior or service. But spiritual health does enhance all of these mediators. What's interesting is the belief in God is not necessary to benefit from 12-step programs. Although atheists are less likely to get engaged in a 12-step program, the ones that do benefit just as much as, as, as people who are theists. What are the consequences of spiritual practices in, on, on spiritual health? Well, we know that spiritual practices promote generally a gradual spiritual awakening. They do increase uh, self-efficacy, well-being, positive emotions. They increase uh, the na healthy nature of relationships. They enhance support. They create a greater sense of interdependence, more pro-social behaviors, altruism. Uh, they give a greater sense of purpose and meaning. They help people to cope positively and, and collaborate in problem solving to deal with life's difficulties. And again, uh, spiritual practices in awakening do recontextualize uh, the diseased habit of addiction and transform the emotional salience uh, of addiction as there's a move uh, from our values and priorities from gratification and relief uh, to uh, a desire for a deeper fulfillment uh, uh, through the practice of loving. In terms of religion and recovery, religion is a little bit different from spirituality. Uh, religion can uh, promote spiritual health uh, or it can hinder spiritual health. Um, but it turns out that religious involvement is protective against addiction. Highly religious people have lower rates of substance use disorders. Uh, religion provides structure, connection, support, purpose, and meaning, which all can promote recovery. And religions also prescribe ethical behavior uh, and promote uh, uh, integrity, which also can help protect against addiction. Um, in terms of psychedelic-induced awakenings and recovery, there's robust but 
preliminary evidence for alcohol and nicotine and cocaine use disorders for psychedelics um, a triggering uh, a recovery. There's a need for larger replication studies with active placebo arms. And there's a need to study more longer-term outcomes. Uh, what, what are the longer-term outcomes of the use of psychedelic-enhanced uh, substance abuse treatment uh, over periods of years? Um, we just don't have enough time uh, yet and data in terms of the long-term use of these agents. What's most important is that the effective use of psychedelics must occur within a therapeutic and spiritual context uh, for these agents to be effective uh, for the treatment of addiction. Um, what's interesting is that um, when you look at the efficacy of a psychedelic-induced, of psychedelic-enhanced psychotherapy, that the efficacy of the treatment correlates with the intensity of the mystical experience. The mystical experience predicts decreased uh, percent alcohol drinking days, for example, uh, in, in, in several studies. And also uh, the intensity of the mystical experience uh, predicted um, decreased smoking craving and smoking at both 6 and 12 months uh, in another study. So um, how do we, how do we, given that we know that spirituality promotes recovery, that spiritual awakening uh, markedly increases uh, the, the phenomenon of recovery from addiction, how do we go about responsibly, ethically, and effectively uh, nurturing uh, the spiritual health of our patients and uh, helping to cultivate, helping them to cultivate their own, their own conditions for a spiritual awakening. Well, there are a number of, of books, uh, and uh, in the references uh, with this presentation, uh, you you can see uh, th those books. Um, and I encourage uh, the listener to to study up on the ethical and appropriate integration of spiritually oriented interventions into psychotherapy. Uh, the second thing I'd say is that, that uh, unlike uh, perhaps with, uh, with, with uh, clinical knowledge uh, and techniques, that when it comes to spirituality and cultivating our patient's spirituality, I believe that there's a role of the therapist's spirituality. I think we can only take people, people as far as we have come ourselves. Uh, and so I think that, that truly good psychotherapy is both evidence-based but also experience-based. Um, and that uh, I see evidence-based treatment as a form of religion uh, in our field, uh, and there's certainly value and, and importance of treatment being evidence-based. But I think there's also a role for experience-based um, factors uh, positively impacting on the efficacy of the treatment that we provide. I think that our that the therapist spiritually impacts impacts upon uh, the therapeutic alliance, and so um, one takeaway from this talk is that I think it's very important that therapists engage themselves in a spiritual practice uh, as a way of um, enhancing their ability to uh, nurture uh, the spirituality and the spiritual development of their of their patients. So as we as we think about uh, uh, incorporating a biopsychosocial spiritual approach to treatment, uh, there's the issue of assessing spirituality. And uh, what we want to assess is the experience of transcendence or unity that our patients have had, uh, their spiritual understandings, um, and then the degree to which their motivations and behaviors are based in love versus based in ego concerns. Um, 
We also want to look at the coherence or, or lack thereof of transcendence, meaning, and love. And, and how, how do the patient's spiritual status impact on their difficulties? Uh, also, uh, it's good to understand a patient's current uh, beliefs and practices. Um, and, and to really uh, ask the question, how can spiritual resources and spiritually oriented interventions be leveraged to help the patient? So in working with patients, it's important in fostering spiritual awakening to, um, to lay out the roadmap, um, to discuss spirituality and spiritual awakening, to be, uh, edu- to educate patients about the nature of these and the impact on, on recovery, uh, and, and possibly explore, uh, among other things, uh, what role addiction might play as a substitute for spirituality. Uh, and the impact of addiction on a patient's spiritual health. And then laying out and encouraging uh, the core practices that foster awakening, including ethical behavior, uh, a purification of desire uh, towards love-based motivations, uh, a renunciation of, um, of, of destructive good now, bad later behavior uh, that... that, um, uh, that um, that uh, that prevents uh, a sense of spiritual health, uh, a, de- a devotion of one's life to service of a greater purpose or cause or higher good, and then to encourage our patients to engage in spiritual practices of their choice. And those practices could be prayer, meditation, yoga, qigong, tai chi, uh, uh, encouraging contemplation. Uh, perhaps patients might uh, benefit, feel that they benefit from engaging in religious rituals, also encouraging spiritual readings uh, as patients have interest in doing so. And then finally encouraging uh, the practice of loving service. In terms of fostering awa- uh, awakening, I think that um, we can address spirituality both directly and indirectly. We can encourage patients to obtain a spiritual mentor or teacher, encourage them to in- in participate in a spiritual community of their choice, and again, to encourage consistent daily spiritual practices. Um, in terms of fostering awakening, uh, many patients will have had awakening experiences, and it's fine to ask if they've had an awakening experience and what it was like. If they've had such an experience, they would benefit from reassurance, reflection on the experience and the meaning of it. Normalization of this is something that, that commonly happens, more commonly than we than we, than we realize, uh, to provide hope and validation, and again, to help them to sort of integrate uh, the experience into their daily lives. I think the other thing we can do is we can, we can engage in a patient-centered process of evoking the patient's own wisdom, uh, which is, again, part of, part of good treatment. The other thing that we can do is, is help our patients, and in motivational work, we do this a lot, to develop their discrepancies to really clarify the discrepancies between their experience, their understanding, and their behavior. Uh, maybe what are their deepest values, um, and, and then how are their behaviors or, or their feelings contrary to those values. Uh, developing discrepancies is, is a great way of helping to, uh, to, to promote an, an awakening process. And then finally, I think believing in patients' positive possibilities is, is essential for all good psychotherapy. Um, in terms of fostering awakening, we need to look at, uh, we can't ego our way into awakening, 
but we can help our patients through the things that we have some control over. And if we look at what we, the ego does have control over, there is the phenomenon of, of intention and reflection. Those are two mental capacities uh, that we all have, intention and reflection. And through intention and reflection, we have some control over what we pay attention to, our attitude towards our experience, and some degree of control over our actions. So attention, attitude, and actions. And through the exercise of intentionality, we can pay attention to certain things, we can have a certain attitude towards our experience, and then we can engage in certain actions that will promote an awakening experience. Uh, I've, I've synthesized these into what I call the four A's of awakening. And uh, we can teach our patients this process. And the four A's are to attend, to appreciate, to abstain, and to act. What do we attend to? We attend to the present moment. We try and, and get out of our autonomized auto perception and, and see things freshly, openly, and clearly. Uh, uh, take and, and retrieve our awareness from its immersion in, in the compulsive thought chatter that most of us experience and be present in this moment, uh, not so much uh, lost in past or present or in thought. Uh, the second A is to appreciate the gift of existence, to have a humble and reverent attitude towards uh, the experience of conscious awareness, even if it's painful or pleasure or, or, or uncomfortable. And then the, the third A of abstaining is to abstain from destructive behaviors that are harmful to ourselves or others. And then find the fourth A is to act, and, and, and what this means is to act with love to act in ways that enhance life, that enhance our life, lives, or the lives of others. Attending and appreciating uh, make up more of a contemplative practices. Uh, attending to the present moment and appreciating the gift of existence uh, inspire an attitude of love, an attitude of reverence. Um, and then abstaining and acting are more of action uh, or behavioral uh, practices uh, which have to do with uh, acting with love and abstaining from harm. So let's talk a little bit about attending. Uh, when we attend, we extract awareness from immersion in sense experience, including thought. It's a form of present moment awareness. We look carefully so that we might see, and we listen closely so that we might hear. One way of attending is to ask the question repeatedly, what is this? What is this? When we attend, we cultivate the experience of stillness. And when we attend, as we go through our daily lives, we cultivate the capacity for stillness in motion. The benefits of attending include clarity, insight, disidentification with the thought, uh, thought stream, um, openness, calm, a sense of freedom, and again, inspiring a sense of love or reverence, um, which helps cultivate a sense of appreciation uh, for this for this moment. Appreciating is a practice of our attitude. Uh, when we appreciate, we override the default neurobiological uh, drive to sort of judge experiences good or bad, uh, uh, which then drives suffering. We cultivate an attitude of unconditional reverence or radical reverence uh, for this moment, whether it's painful or pleasurable. Uh, appreciating is a way of dehabituating to the miraculous. Uh, which which really our consciousness is. When you awaken, you see that 
this moment of awareness is, is truly a miracle. Uh, when you appreciate, you see the sacred in all things and all beings. Um, you experience yourself as sacred and, and other people as sacred. Appreciating uh, helps to cultivate uh, uh, gratitude. It also cultivates a sense of harmony uh, and also humility and, and acceptance. Um, uh, it, uh, when you practice appreciating, you honor pain as a sacred messenger. You embrace pain rather than flee from it. Uh, and in, in embracing pain and, and accepting pain and honoring uh, the value of pain, you remove the uh, unnecessary suffering from the experience of distress. Also, appreciating helps free us from compulsive grasping and aversion. Uh, it also, uh, appreciating is, is a way of cultivating the experience of self-compassion when there is a distress that arises in consciousness. Uh, there's also the practice of really appreciating non-appreciation. There are times when our experience is so painful that we, we don't have the capacity to really uh, appreciate perhaps the value of the extreme distress and pain that we're going through. And at those times, then the practice is one of appreciating uh, that we are having an experience of non-appreciation. Um, in terms of abstaining, uh, the, what we are talking about is really a practice of abstaining from any sort of destructive behaviors. It's taking a vow of no harm. So this would include addicting, a hurtful or unproductive speech, unhealthy dependencies that, that harm ourselves or others, a compulsive grasping and aversion, uh, uh, abstaining from non-acceptance uh, of things the way that they are, uh, abstaining from overly controlling in, in, a, in a selfish and self-centered way at, at the harm of, of others or the disrespect of other people's autonomy, uh, uh, abstaining from ego-based manipulation of other people, and also abstaining from seeking fulfillment or happiness uh, through uh, uh, sensual gratification. Um, it, when you abstain, it's really important to... Um, understand that you're giving up something, you're renouncing something uh, negative or destructive for something far better. That really uh, the value of renunciation, re renunciation is not so much in what we're giving up, but what we are receiving as, as a consequence of giving up something destructive or unhelpful. So for example, if we give up the destructive uh, gratification of addicting um, for the fulfillment of loving, that's an exchange uh, that leaves us far better off. Uh, the, the process of renunciation occurs when there is this reordering of values with love becoming the primary value, uh, and which then puts ego concerns into their proper uh, perspective. Uh, in practicing abstaining, I teach uh, patients the four Ps of abstaining. Those four Ps are presencing, pausing, processing, and proceeding. Uh, presencing is the idea that we need to be present uh, to impulses that arise. Uh, uh, otherwise, we might compulsively act on them out of mindlessness without even realizing what we're doing. Uh, pausing is to notice when there's an impulse that comes up that, that feels that, uh, that is negatively driven or that could be potentially destructive. And then processing is to ask, is to, to talk it out, to think it out, to meditate it out, to write it out. Uh, to to wait it out and ask the question, what would love do? Uh, in processing, we want to honor legitimate ego concerns for our safety and well-being. Uh, 
but put them in their proper perspective and, and process them in terms of a, a love-based hierarchy of values. Uh, what would love do? What is what is the best way to respond to the situation? So if there's a craving, uh, the best thing to do perhaps would be to uh, talk out the, the positive um, aspects of, of not acting on the craving, uh, the negative consequences of acting on the craving, and then to um, think about ways, the alternative, more loving ways to soothe and distract ourselves and, and care for ourselves uh, as we understand more what, what might be triggering the craving. Um, and then the, the fourth P is proceeding, and that is to, to, to act with love. Uh, I teach my patients never crave alone and never hurt alone. These are the two core recovery skills that are so important for um, uh, for this process of uh, helping us to abstain. Um, in terms of acting uh, with love, uh, there are many different uh, love-based practices uh, that can be um, uh, that, that that we can teach our patients and, and help cultivate and nurture uh, in, in their um, in their recovery. And love-based uh, practices include the practice of accepting uh, reality as it is, accepting ourselves as we are, accepting others as they are. The practice of accountability, holding ourselves and others accountable, is is a loving thing to do. Also, affirming ourselves and others. Uh, another practice is being assertive uh, with other people to protect ourselves from harm and to get our needs met. Another love-based practice is, is the practice of authenticity, to be skillfully authentic uh, and appropriately transparent uh, with people uh, to enhance our, our sense of real connection uh, with other people. Another practice is the practice of caution. Uh, realizing that our life is sacred and highly valuable and that we, and that there is risk entailed in, in, in moving throughout the world. Another practice is charity or generosity. Another practice is compassion, uh, feeling a desire to alleviate the suffering of ourselves or others and then acting to reduce the suffering of ourselves or others. Another practice is contentment. Another is cooperation or collaboration. Another practice is the, is the practice of courage, uh, doing what is right and good despite our fear. Another practice is devotion to a higher purpose, to, to people that we love. Uh, uh, it's easy to love when you're feeling loving. It's more difficult when you're feeling unloving. But again, this is where devotion comes in. Another practice is the practice of discipline, uh, doing what's needed, what's called for, uh, in a consistent and regular way, even if we don't happen to maybe feel uh, like doing it because it is the right and necessary thing to do. Another practice is the practice of empathy. Truly seeking to understand deeply the experience of others is profoundly loving and healing. Another practice is the practice of endurance, just putting one step in front of the other and getting through difficult times with resilience and grit and, and sometimes hanging on uh, uh, when there's a lot of distress and adversity. Another practice is forgiveness. Uh, another is the practice of gratitude. Another is the practice of being helpful to others. Another practice is hoping for ourselves and others. Another practice is the practice of humility. And then there's the practice of kindness, uh, nurturing uh, other people, having patience with ourselves and others, 
being trustworthy uh, with, with other people, and then uh, being wise and skillful in our behavior. Being wise, wisdom meaning acting in ways that are effective in terms of enhancing our well-being and the well-being of others. So I'd like to uh, begin to end this presentation by talking a little bit about a very simple three-step practice for awakening that basically incorporates these four A's of awakening, of attending, appreciating, abstaining, and acting. And this three-step practice you can teach your patients. Uh, it's very simple. And if, if, if it's repeated over and over and over again throughout the day, for many days, months, and years, uh, it can help foster uh, the experience of awakening. Uh, the first step is to ask, what is this? Over and over again, what is this? This is the practice of attending. Uh, the second thing is to make the affirmation, this is sacred. This is the practice of appreciating. Whether painful or pleasurable, seemingly good or bad, according to ego judgments, this and everything, everybody, is sacred. This is sacred. So the first step is, what is this? And then the affirmation. The second step, this is sacred. And then the third uh, uh, step is to ask, what would love do? What would love do? What would love do? This incorporates the practices of abstaining and acting with love. So the three steps are, what is this? This is sacred. What would love do? It's a very simple practice. If, if, if done a, a thousand times a day, uh, for a thousand days or more, uh, will uh, lead to uh, a, a gradual awakening process. So in conclusion, uh, addiction is a neurobiological, uh, neurobiopsychological illness with in part a spiritual solution. Uh, spiritual practices do promote awakening and, and awakening and the behavioral consequences of awakening both promote recovery. And we can foster our patients' recoveries by fostering their spiritual growth and awakening. And we can do this both directly and indirectly. Uh, again, this is, uh, uh, this is, uh, my name is Dr. Michael McGee. Um, it's been a pleasure to, uh, give this presentation to you. Um, you can find out more about, uh, me and my work, uh, at drmichaelmcgee.com. I also have a book on recovery called The Joy of Recovery that you can find on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Uh, and you can also uh, find me at the, thejoyofrecovery.com. And again, uh, feel free to email with any questions or thoughts uh, at mdm at wellmind.com. Uh, thank you, and I hope this is helpful to you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.